Welcome to Rushcast. My name is Jay Mantis. Thank you very much for listening to our show. We're happy to have you here. This is the last episode of our 2016 album series. We started the first week of 2016, and at the time I looked at my calendar and I had scheduled one album per week in order, and I said, man, it's going to be pretty much June by the time we're done with this thing. That's going to take forever. And it went by really fast. It went by really quickly. So, and I know most of you have been on board for all of it. Nearly all of you have been here since January, if not even further back. And, and I, I want to make it clear that I'm very appreciative uh, of you, the people that are listening to my voice. So thank you, guys. Uh, we have a, obviously a, a pretty popular record to talk about today, Clockwork Angels. And I'm bringing on two uh, friends of mine who have been on the show before, Alec Poulianis and Dylan Bano. How you doing, guys? Pretty man. Doing right. well. All right, here's, how, here's what we're going to do to start this out. I'm going to say, hey, Dylan, and then you're going to say some words, and then Alec is going to say some words, and it's up to everybody else to figure out which voice is which after that. So, Dylan, where are you calling from? Hey. Man? Where are you calling from? Uh, come- I'm calling from Saskatchewan, Canada. Very nice. Uh, Alec, I know where you're at, right? Where are you at? I'm in Baltimore, Maryland. Baltimore, Maryland. So Dylan's a big uh, football fan, and um, Alec is an Orioles fan for some reason. So (laughs) we all have sympathy for the Orioles fan. And also, you know what? We have sympathy for a guy that loves American football but lives in Canada. Is the CFL any good, Dylan? Oh, the C- the CFL is great. Um, I mean, do football fans in Canada also watch the NFL? Oh, I'd say I'd say it's about fifty fifty actually. Like, um, I watch CFL and NFL, uh, but I know some guys that just watch NFL and some oh. guys that uh, don't follow. NFL at all. I and see. They just to the CFL. Yeah. Alec, quick, um, are, how are the Orioles going to do this year? Hey, man, we're a special team this year. I don't know if you've seen our record. Uh, <laughs> a think, special uh, team. They might make it to the playoffs, and you never know what happened when you get to the playoffs. Uh, it was uh, learned right here on Rushcast that Donna Halper used to listen to the Orioles on the radio as a kid, which was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. All right, so... Hey, before we get into the album, I want to send a special thank you at the close of our album series here to our buddy Ron Reed, who came on and talked about My Favorite Headache, and he was also on the Moving Pictures episode. And since the Moving Pictures episode, he's been throwing together our intro music, which have been sort of medleys of different sorts. In this case, it was a medley of every track on the album. And they've been awesome, and it's been really cool for me to not 
have one less thing to do in preparation for the album being released. You know, it takes a little bit off my shoulders. But the bottom line is they were really cool to hear. They're really cool to open the episode. So thank you, Ron. I know I forgot to mention them in the last couple episodes, and I wanted to get that in here at the end. Uh, so yeah, thank you, good, Ron. Good Ron. job, Ron. So. Yeah, I really enjoyed it myself. Uh, Clockwork Angels. It's weird. We were just talking a second ago off the air. All three of us are bass players, and all three of us, I think, are within maybe a, maybe like two years or a year and a half the same age. And to most Rushcast listeners, that essentially means we're the identical age. So not a ton of <laughs> diversity on this episode and different points of view, but it'll be fun nonetheless. Uh, I think we all saw this tour live like a few times, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I saw it once. Dylan saw it once? Yeah, just once. How many did you see, Alec? I counted before the show. Uh, I think I went either four or five times on the various lakes. And I did, I did three shows um, on the East Coast. So uh, we had some nice experiences live. Uh, but let's, talk, let's get into the tracks here. I mean, uh, l- let's talk about the novel briefly right now we can we can call back to the novel as we go through the tracks but let's talk about it in general right now my my big takeaway from reading the novel and i know alec just read it i'm not sure about dylan uh yeah you have yeah my big thing was that Uh, like i I learned a lot about the actual story it wasn't the story that i learned from the album was not 100% 100% correct. Once I read the book, I thought, oh, that's not what I thought that was. Or this had been drawn differently in my brain. You know what I mean? Alec, what was your takeaway from reading it? Yeah, I felt the same way. Um, the track listing kind of goes in a different order than the book, just a tad. Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, reading the book kind of gave you a better idea of the story arc. Um, I honestly like just listening to the album, it was kind of just little snippets of this this grand tale of his life and the anarchist and the, and the watchmaker. Um, and and realistically, the, <laughs> the the novel's not that much better, but it doesn't expand upon it and give you a little bit more of the storyline how it all goes down. Yeah, here here's the big surprise for me was Seven Cities of Gold. And uh, that was a different thing than I thought it would be once I read the novel. Was that the same for you? Yeah, I would say that um, Sensei is gold and also the Wreckers. Um, like, I didn't realize that he ran aboard the Wrecker ship um, from the book, or from mm-hmm. the album, rather. So, so that was a, a different part. I saw, uh, so Dylan said he hasn't read it, and we'll tell anybody else who hasn't read it, there are a million Rush quotes that are non-Clockwork Angels related throughout the novel. And I saw you tweet about this, Alec. But did you like that, or did you did it get on your nerves a little bit? It got on my nerves. Like, <laughs> there's, there's a part where he, he quotes uh, Free Will. Like, he chose not to decide. They still have made a choice. And, like, I like, went through, like, the whole thing. Like, I, like, read the book. But the, I was listening to the audiobook. Um and I'm in my car, and I'm like basically reciting the book that I hadn't <laughs> didn't have in front of me because right. there's so many lyrics, and everything was so, like cold fire this, cold fire that, and I felt like that was just a little uh, 
little heavy-handed. Yeah, it might have seemed a little yeah. forced at times, but for me, it was like it was a constant. Am I gonna? You know, there were Easter eggs. Am I going to catch those quotes? Um, how are those quotes going to be used? It was sort of like a nice change of pace from the actual story to to, to see those things throughout. You know what I mean? Actually, could I, you said I have, I, you probably thought I said that I didn't read the book, but I have read the book. Oh, you have I read feel the, the book. Same, I, I feel the same way about the quotes. It's almost like uh, you could have like a, a drinking game, like take a <laughs> shot every time you find a lyric or recognize a lyric and you'd be toast after for one chapter. Yeah, that's absolutely right. <laughs> uh, all right, let's get into it here. I I argue Caravan is everything. I, I mean, before Clockwork Angels came out, Getty had an interview and he said, I still feel like there's one great song in me that had, like, essentially saying there's, like, the best song I've ever written has yet to come. And in my head, I imagined something like Caravan. It was heavy. It was difficult It was to play. It, it was complicated and it was catchy it had all the it kind of encompassed everything I love about Rush. And then Caravan came out not much long after that. Uh and I thought this is that song. That this is that song Getty had inside him and he and he was still working at. It's also interesting that Caravan and Brought Up to Leave are very different than anything else in the Rush catalog because we have two different versions of them. And we'll get into Brought Up to Believe in a second, but I'll throw it to Dylan. Uh what do you think about Caravan? Um, well, when Caravan came out, that's kind of when I was, I mean, goes back to your theory of like your first brand new Rush album is your favorite. And that's kind of what I experienced as well. Um, when, uh, when I heard Caravan, I was just like so blown away by how different it was than any other songs that I was listening to at that time, which I was really into, I was kind of like into their like greatest hits at that point. Um, like the, uh, the free will and the spirit of radio and time stand still. And these, you know, caravan sounded nothing like those. And I was, it took a while to kind of appreciate it, I guess is what I was, what I was trying to do uh, because I hadn't listened to a lot of Vapor Trails other than you know, Earth Shine and One Little Victory or Snakes and Arrows other than Far Cry. That was just, like you said, so heavy, so complicated, and it, the sound itself was so different that it's, it was hard to imagine what the rest of the album would sound like. What about you, Alec? So, I I remember when Caravan and Do to Be came out as singles, and uh, that first night, I, I must have listened to them at least 30 times. Mm-hmm. On repeat, because um, they they rock so hard. But there And there was um, also so much to, to take in. You know, it, it wasn't yeah. like they got old quickly. Oh, no, not at all. Particularly with that um, the Caravan and Jam section, and uh, B2B, I just think of those. A beautiful song, but um, with Caravan, I, I think you said this before, but it's kind of one of those songs that encompass all what 
all of what Rush is. Mm-hmm. Um, the jam section, the catchy hooks, um, there's even, you know, orchestras playing. Uh, I thought it was really great. Yeah, it's just, it's got everything. And as a bass player, like, this is one of my go-tos. It, it satisfies everything I need as, like, a flashy, Getty Lee-style bass player. You know, I, if I want to just, like, if I want to just shred for a few minutes, I can get all of that done in Caravan. It, it has everything that satisfies me as a player. But it never gets old to listen to, and that jam session in the middle is insane. And I don't know how, like, I can play it now because I've heard it so much and I've practiced it. I don't know how they wrote something like that because it's so eccentric. It's so uh, sort of elusive. Like, it's it, you can't quite grab onto the form. It takes some time. I mean, I'm sure they just practiced, but uh, yeah. I think that... It's, I think it's some like of the best... How, go ahead, Dylan. Sorry. Yeah, I was just trying to say, like, it's it kind of gives you an idea of, like, how they jam. They don't jam like normal musicians. They jam like Geddy Lee and Alex Lifeson, yeah. and they come up with this stuff. That's a good point. Now, I think... Uh, I think when the album came out, and we had, like, I was thinking about it this week when I listened to this record, these first two tracks are essentially six or seven years old. I think 2010 was when they came out, right? And, like, that seems like so, that's such a large chunk of my life and our lives as young people. Uh, It feels like it was yesterday, but it really was quite a while ago. Those songs are aging. I think when the record came out, the Caravan version was slightly different, and I think it was a small upgrade. However, with Brought Up to Believe, I do like the single version better than the album version. So, what, uh, Alec, what do you think about that intro that was added to Brought Up to Believe? Oh, we're going to have some different opinions here, I think, because I actually think that intro really sets the tone for B to B and kind of paints it in a different light. Um, and... I think that whole song just creates such a nice sonic landscape that that beginning kind of sets up for you. Um, because being to be, I feel like with that opening has a dreariness and um, it kind of, the music that comes after the opening kind of paints that dreariness but also has some like uh, nice, like beautiful parts. So I think that was kind of nice when reflecting on the album or uh, rather on the book and kind of like the world they lived in. Um, so I actually really do like that opening and, and everything with it. I think this is, this might be the track I listen to the least, but I it, that, that doesn't mean it's at the bottom at all for me. It's just because, like Alex said, I listened to these two tracks a million times when those singles came out. So when the album came out, I, I didn't listen to those two for a while. Um, obviously, I love Caravan so much, I got that one got more plays as time went on. Uh, but I go back and listen to it this week, and I go, this song is maybe the heaviest song they've ever written. I would argue that. Definitely like a top three heaviest song that they ever recorded. Uh, and in fact, when they played these two tracks in Time Machine, I thought Brought Up to Believe had a very different uh, experience in the live setting than Caravan did. Like Caravan was great. Caravan was a little, sounded a bit different in areas, but brought it to believe was somehow even heavier and also featured all the steampunk like stuff. Uh, they had all the steam uh, spitting out from everything on stage. 
it was a wicked different experience than anybody else had been used to at a Rush show. Uh, Dylan, what do you think about that intro and the song as a whole? Um, well, when I heard about the added intro, like I, I liked the song uh, as the single version, and I actually heard it on the radio out here uh, maybe once or twice. I wasn't sure. Um, but yeah, it was really heavy. And again, like Caravan, it was really different. Um, but in, in listening to Caravan and then Broad to Believe, I feel like the mix on Broad to Believe, because it's such a heavy song, it's really squashed. It's like vapor trails almost. It's like mm-hmm. super loud almost all the time. And with the new intro, I heard that it was, you know, kind of acoustic-y, that Alex wrote uh, something in, like, a hotel room or something and added it on later. And I thought, well, maybe that would, might change the sort of dynamics of this new mix. And unfortunately, for me, it just doesn't seem as good of a difference as it could have been. So something that I do, and with, like uh, all the songs of this album, I put a treble booster equalizer on it, and it kind of clears up the low end and okay. makes the cymbals a little bit brighter. And I really like that, and it kind of like gave the uh, the song a new air for me. Interesting. It's yeah, but the song as it as itself as a, as a you know as a, as a musical composition is. So it's it's plotting, right? It's slow, but it's heavy, and then it's also that bridge in the section kind of changes it a little bit. Like it goes kind of soft with the synthesizers in it, and then back to like soaring guitar, kind of far, far cryy kind of bridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Soaring guitar. I'm glad. I'm glad you said soaring guitar because it's my favorite. Uh, those are my favorite terms when we're talking about Alex. I th- I just I think I got attached to the ending and the tra- of Caravan transitioning into the beginning of Brought Up to Believe on the singles because the end of Caravan it kind of functions as like what you call a half cadence, sort of not technically, but it sounds like a half cadence, meaning your ear wants that last note and you don't quite get it it kind of it's kind of choked on the record the end of caravan is not choked live they kind of hold that last note out but on the record it's choked and then it's all that tension is released with the beginning of brought it to believe with that big e chord so that that moment that effect is completely subtracted from the experience with the new version that's the issue i have with it i don't necessarily think it's bad music there was just like a really nice marriage between those two songs, and they kind of plopped this thing right in the middle of it. But I will say, it kind of makes Brought Up to Believe 2 more relevant, because Brought Up to Believe 2, later in the album, has elements of this new intro a bit, and also other areas of the album. So, you know, I'll give it credit, it's just, it's sort of like the timing is what kind of irks me more so than the music. We move yeah, on to it's the kind of like an interlude. Yeah, that that's a great point, and and also like if if that interlude had somehow made it like a good news first 
esque kind of uh, swell into that big chord and didn't just die. Like it's sort of like the the pre-chorus to the song or whatever. You know, it's this tiny little song that stops and has an end, and then we get brought up to believe. But I, I am definitely nitpicking. Um, when I saw it, uh, I, go ahead. I just wanted to bring up uh, one little fun fact: is that Getty plays a theremin during a guitar solo um, of the song. So you mean so like behind the guitar solo? Yeah, apparently he uh, he tracks a theremin. I think you can you can kind of hear it. It kind of it almost would sound like a keyboard. Um, yeah, but, if you don't know what a theremin right. is, Alec, this is the thing where you use your hand, right? Yep. You hold your hand up to this instrument, and it makes this sort of um, Martian... Star Trek. Yeah, Star, Star Trek, Trek kind of sound. Uh, yeah, I had, I had actually forgot all about that. That's a good point. Uh, when I saw my first concert on this tour, it was up in Montreal, and I remember, along with the Analog Kid... Clockwork Angels was were two surprise standouts to me. The song Clockwork Angels had a really w- cool effect among that crowd, where every, you know the people raised their hands as if to fly, and everyone in this whole arena had their hands up. And the lighting—I was so high up that I could see the lighting on the stage. And I remember on this song, it was so unique. It was so different than any other light show I had seen, even at Rush. And then uh, at that line where he says, is it the fly? And the lights slowly go out across the audience. It was incredibly uh, moving in a sense. It's sort of a cliche, but it was cool to have everybody in that room was in the same moment. Uh, it works really well live. And I remember they released this track. Like the day before the album came out, they they sort of leaked this track out so we could hear it. Um. This is one of my favorites on the record. It's sort of a not a one-two punch on this album, but a one-two-three punch for me. How about you, Dylan? Yeah, like, I agree with everything you said about uh, seeing it live. Um, I really, really kind of regretting not being able to see it more than once. Because mm-hmm. um, at the our forty tours that I was on, uh, uh, shows that I was at, they didn't play at any it at either one i know they were rotating it but i didn't i only got to see it once on the on the clockwork tour and yeah i the lighting and the the monitors how they kind of came down and then you could kind of see like the angels and the the monitors turned to to show all the wings and really yeah aside from reading the book that's the sec you know that's the best way to see you know, kind of experience the imagery of what the lyrics are trying to show you. Right, the, and the that's a, that's and isn't it weird how you? It's left open in the novel as to what these angels look like. We know they're machines; they're essentially robots in a sense, but they're beautiful, and people are in awe of their beauty. But they never really quite explain to you what they look like. Yeah, Neil says that's intentional. And yeah. um, I was reading the uh, classic rock magazine. Um, and they said that they intentionally didn't show you what the angels look like. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I definitely echo the same um, feelings about just seeing it live and the chills you'd get when everyone put their hands up. And uh, they also, um, there's a lot of backwards echoes on the on the song. Mm-hmm. Especially yeah, at the um, beginning, right? Right at the top? Yep. Yeah. And, I, and I feel like that kind of like, um, 
he also had that kind of represented the uh, the wind underneath the uh, angel's wings. Um, oh, I also interesting. really like the fact that this. Yeah, I really like the fact that this song is in six eight uh, for a lot of it. Um, I just really enjoy that time signature. Well, yeah, that's a great segue into what I was about to mention is how uh, this is a nice sort of exercise in something that Rush has always been good at, and that's weird time signatures. In this case, like Alex said, it's in 6-8, but a lot of the time in this track, the bass is playing 4 over the 6-8. So during the verses, Getty's plucking, he's going 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, 4, while the rest of the group is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Uh, and that's called polymeter, <laughs> and, and I've talked about it before. They do it really well, and this is the this is my go-to for a really good example, a really easy example of what a polymeter sounds like and feels like. Uh, but very, very cool to hear. And and again, at the end of this track with "What Do You Lack," a very uh, proggy kind of concept album thing that you would expect from a concept record. Um, they didn't play it live. Did uh, Did either of you hear "What Do You Lack" live? No. I think it's called The Peddler, no, right? Not that you you probably it. couldn't Fine, even right. hear it if they did. No, I, I just remember, um, like, at the beginning of The Anarchist, Eddie kind of repeats it at the during the intro. That's really as, as far as it has been done. <laughs> sure. Uh, I was shocked when... R40 opened with the Anarchist. If you told me they were going to open from something from Clockwork, I would have been shocked even. But I would have said, oh, it's Caravan. Like, there's, what else would they open up with this this tour with than Caravan on this album? Uh, maybe like a headlong flight or something, but uh, I was shocked. And now I listen to it and I go, yeah, it's a good opener, but it's sort of buried in the album. And it just doesn't, it didn't strike me as an opening song. The song itself, like, let's forget the tour for a second. The song itself is fantastic. And I know a lot of people in 2012 when the record came out, friends of mine, we'd talk about it. They'd say, you know what? The Anarchist is my favorite on the tra- on the album right now. It's my favorite track. Do you guys like I it? I agree. Alec, what do you think? Man, as a bass player and a lover of bass pedals, this song definitely pops out for me. <laughs> <laughs> like, I... Every once in a while, I'll get in the mood where I just want to hear bass pedals. Mm-hmm. And I usually go to the song because it's just so thick and dense and uh, the fantastic drumming um, and all that. I I can see, so I read that this song was written around the same time as Caravan and Brought to Believe. And I could believe it because it's definitely some of their heavier work. Um, the heavier stuff that they wrote for this album seems to come from that period. And then um, we'll find out later, like, Hello Flight. And Seven Cities of Gold kind of came from, uh, or no, rather, Him on Flight and Carnies came from a later jam session. But yeah, like, I just really like all of, uh, that song. And I think it was kind of a, a weird way to start off R40 because, <laughs> I mean, almost no one knows that song, right? Except for the hardcore fans. Yeah. Um, but I, I started to really dig it, like you said. Um, I always liked the tune, but. Just that opening drum fill, it was, it was a good way to start off the show. 
I love um I love the fact that the bass plays the melody for parts of this song. The bass is playing what the guitar or vocals would be doing. Uh, a nice nice way to branch out a bit. Not that they've never done that, but it's definitely front and center in this case. Uh Dylan, what do you think about the anarchist? Uh you know, probably like uh, like Alex just said, it's probably my favorite one on the album, and it was probably my favorite since the start. Um, that you're kind of listening to this overture type of intro where you go through like five or six different parts that are going to be repeated later, and the bass is front and center in pretty much every part. It's mm-hmm. The uh, the guitar and the bass are kind of separated uh, left and right, which kind of give it that kind of old school uh, rush sound. Like you can ha- kind of hear on moving pictures in twenty one twelve of those albums back then. Totally. They didn't didn't separate them entirely all the time, but you could tell that the bass was clearer in one speaker than the other, and just like it's so rush like to have the bass play the melody in <laughs> during the intro of a song and like the main backbone of the song. It's it, what other band has you singing along with the bass part? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> uh, now I, I think this song is, we have to say something for the, the vocal part. I think this is a, a good example of the producer's uh, influence on this record where Nick was su- suggesting Getty sing up high like he always had. You know, you push push a little bit, sing even higher. And, man, he gets up there on this on this one. I remember, like, maybe two out of the three shows I saw on this tour, he, he didn't quite hit that note the way he wanted to. You could tell it was difficult. Uh-huh. Now, you listen to The Anarchist and you go, if, if you're listening to this album for the first time, you listen to The Anarchist and you're like, this is a pretty riff-heavy album, you know? There's, like, we've even heard Rush say there's riff Rush, and then there's other Rush. You know, a lot of a lot of the stuff on Presto or, like, Hold Your Fire-ish isn't really riff-oriented. But up until this point, especially with The Anarchist, we've heard nothing but riffs. And then we get to the next track, Carnies, and what do we open with? A really tasty riff. We have had nothing but riffs, essentially, um, this Carney's intro with the pinch harmonics and that old, I think it's like a fifties gold top Les Paul that Alex plays really, really cool sound that I, I never quite got that sound live. Each time I'd heard it live, it wasn't quite the same as that record, uh, the record version, but I don't know. What do you think, Dylan? Yeah. I, when I heard Carney's, I, for the first time I thought it was like, it's got the same feel as brought up to believe. And I don't know if that was intentional or, you know, it kind of came from the same jam session or they just finished jamming that song. They're like, you know, we can kind of change it a little bit. Well, you know what, Dylan, that's one of my criticisms of this record is that most of it is in the same key or same, like one or two keys. So like you said, if you have a riff that's even similar to another song and they're in the exact same key, in this case, E, they're going to sound really similar, right? Yeah. That doesn't mean that, uh, you know, they didn't nickel back it and break the same song. Yeah. 
Wait a minute, um, Nickelback is from Canada, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm just I'm just checking. Now you know. Sorry. I think We're we can so all. Sorry. <laughs> you heard it here on Rushcast, folks. Dylan speaks for the entire <laughs> nation of Canada. They're sorry for Nickelback. Uh, I think <laughs> I think the three of us can agree that the the end of Carney's live was insane. Probably not as insane as any as Jacob Sakelli and all those other uh, string players on the stage, but that pyro show was insane. Like nothing we've ever, nothing I've ever seen while seeing Rush shows. Yeah, it was. I mean, for the for that show, uh, that tour to include Red Sector Eight and Far Cry and Carnies, it's like <laughs> how many how many trucks of fireworks did they go through? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Alec, you want to say something about Carnies? Yeah, I. So one thing I really liked is you know, after you have the initial carnival sound the tension and release and Neil's drumming and the way he lays back on the beat and uh, strikes you know two toms with his sticks I really just love that um, that that drum pattern he has um, and then Alex has some really experimental um, guitar sound effects in the verses um, and I also thought about you know in the carnival I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the love interest from the carnival but uh, she was like a trapeze artist and um, I feel like baseline is uh, it has like a nice dancing kind of vibe and feel to it. it kind of reminds me of the uh, the gymnast in the carnival. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, for me, I always thought because I had the album for maybe a year and a half before I read the book, I thought that carnies were evil in a sense. I thought carnies were not; uh, they were sort of the antagonists. And I, I know the anarchist is the antagonist, but um, the Carnies are are cool for our um, our, our what do they call him? Our hero, right? Owen Hardy. They're yeah. they're buds. If it, I guess what I'm saying is read the book <laughs> if you haven't. <laughs> uh, now hey, we finally get a track that's a little more laid back and, and less riff oriented. Uh, but a, a really cool showcase of the string section, a showcase of this reminds me of uh, the vibe. Reminds me of uh, Nobody's Hero, and actually a lot of stuff on Counterparts reminds me of Halo Effect and vice versa. Uh, surprised to hear it live. Actually, I mean, essentially the entire record was played live, which is astounding. But uh, I, I think you could argue Clockwork Angels more than any album is is the most live friendly record. Like these songs were meant to be played live. But Halo Effect, a really cool tune, right, Alec? Yeah, so I really appreciate the uh, kind of Eastern European breakdown vibe yeah. it has um, in there. Um, and, you know, it's clear that this song started off as uh, an acoustic, all-acoustic song, and they kind of built on top of it. And, um, you know, Rush, they don't talk about love much, but when they do, um, it's really phenomenal. And I feel like Halo Effect is a, is a really great song. It has this awesome uh, lyrics I think everyone can relate to at one point in their life. I think the one of the high points for me is obviously that the instrumental uh, bridge, like you mentioned, uh, but also the end, a goddess with wings on her heels, and then they sort of stumble into that last chord. You know what I mean? They fall down a couple yeah. steps before they get to that final last uh, chord. It's a really neat effect. What about you, Dylan? 
Yeah, I, um, you know, Halo Effect didn't really, I mean, because every song that preceded it was so riff and <laughs> so riffy and so heavy, Halo Effect kind of was such a, a calm down, like a, uh, sort of like a, a rest song. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, it's almost half the length of every other song on the album, other than Brought Up to Believe 2, because it's like barely three minutes if you kind of cut out the intro uh, effect. And it's, I was, I was kind of confident that I would see it live, just for like, just for that kind of reason, that was kind of a slower, slowed down song. If they were going to play so much, so many songs from from this album live, they had to have one song in there that would, uh, you know, give them a little bit of a rest. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the the placement of it uh, during the set was a little bit strange because <laughs> uh, didn't they play it right after Headlong Flight? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, but that being said that's kind of what they do. They have a drum solo and then Alex does a guitar thing and they go into a kind of acoustic-y song. That's true. And that recorded version of that solo and then it goes, leads into he- uh, Halo Effect is, I know a lot of people say like Bruins Bane slash the trees, they they can't separate those two. And I'm glad I they never separated uh that solo in the song because I feel like that solo at the beginning just elevates the song so much. That show that Alex played that that was uh, that it was recorded. It was, it was better than the one I saw live, and I kind of had a have a more more of an appreciation of the whole song because of that little solo he did. Yeah, I wonder if that you know I wonder if he was essentially writing that in in improving upon it as the tour went on. So maybe you saw it earlier in the tour and it wasn't quite as polished. That's very possible. Um, I forget. Alec, did you talk about Halo Effect? Yep. Yeah, I started off with it. That's right. Okay. I guess I'm getting old or something. I, I, <laughs> I have a podcast where I talk to nothing but 50-year-olds <laughs> and you too. And I'm like, oh, I'm so old. <laughs> All right, I'm interested in Seven Cities of Gold. I, I talked about how how I did, I did, I thought it was literally like these beautifully rich and and uh, prosperous cities, like literally encrusted in gold, and uh, that's sort of what Owen Hardy thought in the novel as well. Uh, he goes on this extreme like quest within the adventure to find these cities, and it turns out. There isn't much there, uh, and I, that was a that was a kind of a big shock for me while reading the novel. The song itself, obviously, the three of us can agree, features a pretty kick-ass bass line. In my opinion, this song goes on for like uh, maybe like forty seconds too long. Like it's there's just I could I could do without like one section of it. It repeats itself a little bit too much for me. But there's a couple of like measures of seven in there. Uh, and that that bass line is featured prominently. I know this one was recorded on one of Getty's secondary jazz basses. I think the Sunburst bass that he recorded this one on. I know they used the Sunburst live on this record. 
Uh, and the last little interesting thing I have on this track is when I saw it in Montreal, it was one of the very few train wrecks, in a sense, that I saw Rush uh, fall into live, where Neil just came in in the wrong spot and they couldn't quite get it real. They couldn't quite reel it in for a few measures. Uh, but this was fun to hear live, and, and I wasn't surprised they played it. Uh, Dylan, what do you think of the the track itself? Well, right off when you start it, it's just like if you thought like if you thought the anarchist had a cool bass tone, like this one is kind of it's in your face right away. You don't have to wait for it. The could, bass is right there. Could this be <laughs> the only example of a Rush song where it's just bass, like literally nothing else? I'm trying to think. Uh, Double Agents just starts with just yes, bass. Yes, good call, good call. Yeah. That's it's true. It's not as in your face as this one. <laughs> no. And I mean, um, that's a representation of how, how his bass tone has matured since 1996, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, when I listen to this song, like, the, the lyrics paint such an awesome tapestry of the, you know, like a, like a wilderness turning into a, de- uh, you know, a snowscapes and mountains. And the one lyric in particular that I just, I can't ever get out of my head because it's so perfect is the nights get longer the farther I go. Wake to aching cold and a deep Sahara of snow. It's it's I, it's what I imagine Hugh Syme was thinking about when he drew or he painted the picture that's in the book mm-hmm. of the of the mountain, and then you kind of see like a glimpse of gold in the in the background. I kind of think of of uh, like if somebody made a music video for this song, they would have to use like bunch of imagery or a bunch of scenes from like game of thrones when they're like north of the wall or something it's just so it it paints the perfect picture in your mind absolutely what about you alec you're up so seventh of gold is probably one of my least favorites on the album to be honest Mm -hmm. uh similar to you i think um it went on too long uh, as much as I absolutely love the bass intro and the agoga bells and the outro, that similar kind of uh, tone, um, I just I kind of always felt the vocal melody was a little forced and just um, I mean, like you said, it was, it was really repetitive. Um, I read that they were supposed to have a kind of a live jam feel right. to kind of capture what they were able to do live. Um, another interesting fact is that the Mellotron like keyboard sound um, that's right before the last chorus. They record at the last minute. Um, it was kind of an overdub. Oh, okay. I just think that the the section where he says, "And the nights get farther, the longer I go," or or whatever, the nights get longer, the farther I go. Uh, that instrumentally behind that is not much happening. It's not their best writing. Uh, so aside from this, I guess this amazing bass riff kind of saves this song, in my opinion. It, you know, it's not a bad song. It's it's just I think like Alex said. My least favorite on the record. I think it's the least listenable on the record. There's not a ton there to sink your teeth into aside from a really greasy, swanky bass line. Uh, and, and we move into maybe the most radio-friendly on the record. I guess you could argue that for Halo Effect, too, but the record has a predictable song form, 
a very emotional sound to it. Uh, it was fun to hear live. I think the best part about this one live for me was the difference in the ending. Alec, the you'll like this. The ending featured the bass pedals. It, this song's in the key of D, and uh, a bass can't. Uh, Getty's normal, normally tuned basses don't go down to a low D. So Getty played these big fat D notes in the bass pedals live. And that was the last thing you heard. We just had these low thunder, like earth-shattering low Ds at the end of that track. I wish I had that on the record. Uh, but anyway, the records is a great tune on the album as well. What do you got, Alec? Yeah. Um, I remember when I first heard the records, and I was just yelling and screaming that they needed to make this their single, and this was going to make Rush big. And <laughs> such a great song, and, and um, yeah, and you know everyone knows the story about how um, Alex and Getty swapped instruments when they were writing the song yep. during a downtime in the studio. Um, and yeah, just have a wonderful melody and hooks. Um, they took those like a bare naked lady song, uh, <laughs> and I also really liked that when they played it live, um, the effect that they had going on with the um, the lights. And the screens, it kind of made it look like it was raining on uh, on the stage with um, the way the lights kind of shot down. It looked like mm-hmm. it was a downpour. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was actually a really cool effect live. Interesting that this album doesn't really have a music video to it, like in a standard music video. It has the lyric video for Headlong Flight and then this essentially lyric video for The Wreckers, which they played behind it in that rain that you were talking about. Uh, but there's no like video with them playing like there was on Snakes and Vapor Trails. and uh, Actually, I can't think of anything on Vapor Trails that had a video. Maybe there wasn't one for Vapor Trails. But anyway, you've seen Driven and you've seen Stick It Out. Uh, what do you think, Dylan? Uh, you know, I kind of feel that, that, you know, the same uh, that Alex said. Like, uh, it's a very predictable, accessible song. Um, when I heard that it was going to be essentially the fourth single from the album, if you can't brought up to believe, I guess, mm-hmm. um, it's, uh, I, I was kind of surprised that it would be, a, you know, if they would pick that one as a single or even that it would, they would have another single. Uh, but I, I really, you know, appreciated it more when I found out that it was popular enough to kind of be played on, you know, Western Canadian radio. Um, but I only heard it once. <laughs> so maybe they just played it that one time. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I heard I heard Caravan but, on the radio about 100 times in 2012. Actually, 2010 through 2012. And uh, I haven't heard it since, but at least I heard it a bunch. Yeah, uh, but, you know, who listens to radio anymore? That's another good point. You guys have cooler radio stations. I never heard any of these stuff. Before. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> when, when the record well, came... Re- oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, for me, it's maybe a little bit different for you guys because in Canada, uh, there's a certain amount of Canadian content radio stations have to play per hour. So you get a lot of... Uh, you know, you, you pretty much hear a Rush song on any radio station if you're listening to it the whole day. Uh, otherwise it's like, there's, um, I can't think of any Canadian bands anymore. Uh, 
Three Days Grace, Billy Talent, kind of newer bands. Um, and then you got your older ones like April Wine and, uh, you know, stuff like that. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm with Alec. Like, radio is just a different thing now. And it's obviously dying. Uh, but I think, you know, in terms of... Uh, you know, CD sales and the, the CD dying itself and everything going digital. I think Rush is kind of was leading the way in 2012 when they said, hey, if you buy the physical copy of this record, we'll send you all this bonus gear. We'll send it in a, a special package. It'll have this big magazine and all this stuff that you, you know, you will enjoy. I think it had like uh, keychains or something, like stickers or something. Uh, you got extra stuff for no extra charge. If you just bought the physical copy, and we know that Rush likes us to have the physical copy, they like using the space as artwork, you know, the booklet yeah. inside and things like that. Uh, when this record came out, they said, "Hey, there's a single coming out." I'll never forget. There's, I think you guys will know what this. You'll remember this. They had this like 10 second teaser video, um, and it was that. It was the red background and the clock with all the symbols, and the clock sort of spun into the frame, and all the, the hands were moving really fast, and then the hands slowed down and stopped, and they were playing the beginning of Headlong Flight. And in that moment, I remember thinking, I was watching the video, I hadn't heard anything from Clockwork Angels other than the first two, and I thought, oh, this is cool, but why'd they put this like, generic rock band behind it? Like it sounds good, it's but it's not Rush. Like it's obviously some other band. It felt like grungier than Rush would be. And as I heard more of the music, I was like, this song is actually really cool. But this isn't Rush. Like, give me some of the album. Then Headlong Flight came out, and I'm like, oh wait, that that was Rush. That's amazing. That was just a weird experience that I had where I heard Rush and thought for sure it wasn't them. Uh, and I was very very wrong. Uh, I'm shocked this was a single. I couldn't believe this song is seven minutes and 20 seconds long. There is a radio cut out there. It's kind of crudely chopped up. But uh, I couldn't believe out of all of the songs on this record, Headlong Flight was the the first single that they released. Go ahead, Alec. Well, man, all right. So I believe that they released it as the first single because I love Headlong Flight. I love how it shreds. But man, that single is an abomination. Because, <laughs> like you said, oh, the so radio edit, up. yeah, 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 the radio edit. It's it's so chopped up. It sounds so bad. I've only ever heard it once, and I couldn't. I could barely tolerate it. Because <laughs> <laughs> like you kind of lose everything that's so nice about the song, like the extended, um, you know, soloing and um, and jamming out, and uh, even the, the drum part was cut up, um, or the drum solo part. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really like Headlong Flight. Um, I like that it gives a nod to, uh, to Bastille Day. And, um, also they called it, um, get that lampshade off your head <laughs> in the, uh, studio. And even the alchemy symbol looks like a lampshade, um, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny. The, what is, so it's the ninth track. Is that the, the one that's in the nine o'clock position? The alchemy uh, symbol? No, it's so. not. I, Oh, I see it. I see the lampshade. It's in the 8 o'clock position. Yeah, so, I don't know if the, um, 
how that's supposed to line up. I just saw in the um, the Clockwork Angels uh, magazine that they had that alchemy symbol next to it. So I, I didn't right. know what what it, what it was supposed to be. You know, this obviously another track here, Dylan, with a, an amazing bass part, and right at the top as well. Uh, this riff sort of drives the rest of the song, the song as a whole in its entirety. But you know, uh, I, I know what a jazz, I know what a jazz musician would say if he heard this record, or he or she would heard this record. They'd say, "This is all pentatonic, and pen, pentatonic scales are are not the hardest thing in the world, but they're extremely common and extremely useful in rock or metal or whatever in this realm." Uh, I don't fault them for using mostly pentatonic sounds, but that is prominently featured on this record so thus far, and more so on Headlong Flight than anything else. But it's it's done well, and it's it doesn't beat you over the head quite yet. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, you know, it's kind of it's kind of like uh, this is kind of a pop music sensibilities. Like if it's simple and it does its job, then it then, you know, what do you need it to be more complicated for? Mm-hmm. Um that little riff reminds me of uh kind of like the in in Working Man when they kinda of break out of the solo in the near the end of it. They go like yeah, they're the same notes. It's pen, the same pentatonic pen, scale. Pen, yeah, pentatonic. So it's um, kind of a nod that way. Like it had the Bastille dance, got the kind of working man kind of thing. And I mean, they really liked improvising playing working man on the Time Machine tour. So it makes sense that they would car- have that carried over into the studio when they're working on newer material after that. The um, the cover competition to cover a Rush song, get to meet the band. If you win, my entry was Working Man, and I I took that a couple moments of Headlong Flight and inserted them into my Working Man cover because, like you said, they fit perfectly. It's almost like they were made for each other. Yeah, you know, I I think we can all agree one of the coolest moments live was how much more energy somehow they found more energy for this song. Uh, in the middle during the guitar solo. The guitar solo is epic. And somehow, again, more energetic when they play it live. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was blown away. Like, uh, when they played Analog Kid in the first set and people went nuts, uh-huh. like, I thought maybe, you know, maybe that was a bit too early for that song because how can, how can something top that? But Headlong Flight and even a few other songs, it just even, it kind of made you forget about that moment, but, like, Getty hit every note singing, like, vocally, at every show that I saw them play Headlong Flight, and I just could not believe that this 60-year-old dude could hit those notes. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Yeah, the live version was so awesome that I actually swapped it out in my workout playlist from the album version. Nice. (laughs) Because it just had such high energy. Um, it's yeah, it's like, legitimately Eddie's different. Alex's solo is like actually has different notes in it when he plays it live, and I don't know. Maybe he just figured something out that he liked better once after the record was written. But uh, at least we got to hear it on a couple tours. Uh, 
Now, yeah. all right, uh, here's here's what I'm going to ask. Is brought up to believe two. Was that just thrown in there? Was that added just to make it so there were 12 tracks on the album? <laughs> is that what happened here? I mean... It almost feels like it. You still like it? Oh, no, I, it kind of feels that way yeah, a little bit. Um, I kind of... Probably because the album, like, especially, like, these last three songs with, you know, Seven Cities of Gold records and Headlong Flight, those those three songs are the second act of, act of the book, and it comes, like, way after the second half of the album. Of the album, yeah. And there's so much... There's so much missing from the story in the album than there is in the book. So, Broad to Believe 2 is probably an attempt at uh, clarifying some things or, you know, kind of wrapping up the second act of the story before we get into the last two songs. Um, that's kind of a criticism I have of the book is that the second act is kind of where the book kind of falls apart because the the first act was so it was fleshed out a lot more and i feel like it it could have been better i liked it but it could have been better sure uh is it alec do you think it's the most skipped rush song in the catalog uh <laughs> let's see yeah probably i mean they i i remember one in one of the uh interviews, it was either Neil or Getty said that um, it, it, it carried an important part of the story and, um, you know, like, they need to have it in there. But, like you said, I mean, it's kind of it's very short. It's not There's not much substance there. Um, like we said earlier, the opening of Brought to Believe kind of uh, forewarns this, this part and kind of brings them both together. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's just alright. I mean... <laughs> It is what it is. I mean, my thing um, is, it's not really a song. You know what I mean? It's it's yeah. more of it's kind yeah. of like uh, like Dylan said about the intro to the first track. I guess the first brought up to believe was that it's really just an interlude. It's sort of a palate cleanser in a in a way. Um, and to me, it's I don't ha- it's like valuable time. It's sometimes I want to sit down and listen to the concept record front to back, you know, and not skip anything. But other times, I'm like. Yeah, get me to the good stuff, <laughs> you know. Like this, there's not really anything happening here, and I understand it's important to the story. It definitely conveys, I think, exactly what it was meant to convey. It definitely, pu- it it's not a pleasant sounding vibe. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's very ominous and kind of like you get a sense that the character has almost given up on something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, so I uh, think it does what it need. It does what it should do, or what it's supposed to do. Uh, yeah, and so in that way, it's not. I mean, you can't really fault something for doing what it was supposed to do. It was, but that's just what it is. But interesting how I'm look, you look at these last three tracks, especially these 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 next two with brought up to believe two and wish them well. Let's go back to vapor trails. Remember how we explored the Vapor Trails song list and how the, this part of the album got super dark. It kind of went down a different path for just a few minutes. You know, we had Nocturne, 
and we had Freeze, and we had Sweet Miracle. It just, it was a, a collection of two or three songs that were like really, really dark. Uh, and obviously for good reason, it's justified on that record. Here, it's the same thing, and it's in the same place. And as we move to Wish Them Well, I, I've been saying for a few weeks now, I'm just calling the slot right before the last song the Wish Them Well slot now, because I think it's it's oh, it's very uh, the most predictable slot next to the first slot, uh, being that you know what kind of song is going to go there. It's a song like Wish Them Well that is definitely on the weaker side of all the tracks on, on an album, but uh, not a bad song. I think most surprising to me was that it, they played it live. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it works, and, and I like it, and I've defended it a lot. Uh, but what do you think about it, Dylan? Uh, well, I think Alec wanted to say something. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I was just surprised as well if they even played it live. Um, I thought if they were going to drop anything, that'd be one of them. I was disappointed if they played that over... Uh, with um, B to B, uh-huh. but um, wish them well. At least I guess. <laughs> at least I'm being real. Well, mean to wish them well. Uh, I think that was the one they swapped out with uh, Seven Days of Gold at one point. So you'd get oh, part of the see. other. Yeah, um, but you bring up a good point. I I don't think brought up to believe what deserved to be left off of the the actual tour. I think that was strong enough to be played on two tours in a row. You know. Yeah. Um, and one thing that's interesting about this song is they went through three different versions before landing on the one that they eventually, uh, they, the getting went on to say was one of his favorites on the album. Um, but maybe it was just because they, <laughs> they had to try so hard to get this thing out the door. Right. Um, the, uh, I don't know if, uh, the quote he had in the magazine is, um, brush cast appropriate. Uh, but <laughs> He's like, I'm going to take one more pass on this uh, beep. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, because like you said, um, already had done two iterations before that just didn't hit. Yeah. Now, I mean, yeah. this, I think, I've said before that lyrics are like the last thing that I uh, gravitate toward. Like, I'm going to analyze the lyrics lastly before or after I analyze the music. In this case, this is a tr- a tune in a collection of lyrics that I go back to a lot or that kind of haunt me in any um you know many times in my life where it's just turn your back and walk away wish them well you know don't stress out about it let them be like that and you go be better somewhere else does that make sense yeah mm-hmm. a lot i i res- i resonate with this a lot too in that in that sort of way like uh Neil Neil said he's wrote it. He wrote it about uh, you know he has every once in a while like some people that he would consider friends end up uh, you know become you know changing a little bit and it's just becoming more of a poison in your life and you just got to kind of cut them off in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, I never really got the. Uh, this was one of the very last songs for me that I understood and and uh you know absorbed in a way um just because it's it seemed a lot longer to a lot harder to get into as it was starting 
it's kind of like the anarchist in that it's kind of got like an overture almost with uh, you know, repeat, you know, uh, uh, some parts that repeat later on in the song, but it's the high, the high, uh, high vocals wish them well in that Getty is singing kind of like in the, in the background or the harmony are just a little weird. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. I'm a little uncomfortable with that as well, especially since they triggered it live. They did, Alex yes. did like a dance or something. And he would trigger yeah. that. That was a little confusing, but uh, you know, I'm not here to crap on this song because I, I, I like it. Oh yeah, yeah. I I I really like it now too. Uh, just because uh, I mean, the whole album and uh, the and the theme and the and the and the story is very accessible. I mean, it's how many how many uh, people kind of grew up in a small town or not really liking where they live and are always thinking big. They think, like, I'm going to go to the city and I'm going to become, I'm going to become somebody. Or, and then mm-hmm. they have this grand journey and they, uh, you know, you meet people and then you lose friends and all this kind of stuff. It's probably one of the most accessible uh, concept albums, especially by a prog rock band. Sure, Absolutely. I think uh, I think "Wish Them Well" is a nice transition, a, a nice segue out of that d- the darker period of this record, this darker section, and into the last song, which is beautiful and a very different message, or not, maybe not a different message, but uh, um, this this has sort of a different flavor to it than anything else on the record, and obviously anything else in Rush's catalog. This has a different flavor, the garden. Um, you know, I, I they played it live and it worked so well with the set state, the stage setup, the collection of Clockwork Angel songs they had performed before it. But I said during our forty, they're not going to play the garden. Everybody thought of all the tracks on Clockwork, they'd play the garden. I, I can't, I couldn't see them going from, you know, uh, Dreamline. <laughs> Then the garden, and then Tom Sawyer. Like I, I, I couldn't hear that happening, and I was right about that. And I will never let you forget it. <laughs> but uh, I think during the Clockwork tour, it worked really, really nicely. And it's, I think, we can all agree, it's beautifully through composed. Does that make sense, Alec? What do you think about the garden? The garden is an absolutely gorgeous song. Um, it's their best closer ever, in my opinion. Um, and one of the best songs ever. And Getty has said uh, in multiple interviews that he felt that they couldn't have written the Garden five years ago when they were writing Six and Arrows or yeah. ever in their career. And it took all of their songwriting skills and um, experiences to be able to pull this off. And um, I'm glad that they didn't make it fade out and uh, they had a nice cello note at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, it, it, it's a wonderful song. Uh, and I think the lyrics, um, so hard to earn, so easily burned, it's just, it's very, uh, it's ex- I, again, I think it's, those are lyrics that people can relate to. Yeah, and, Dylan said, an really all, Dylan said a great word, accessible. The lyrics are highly accessible on this record, or, you know, the last couple tracks especially. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember yeah. the, yep. the imagery uh, during this song live, like, 
just visually, I can remember what it all looked like very vividly. It had a you know the light show was something else. Not the not just the lights, uh, like the spotlights, but the the moving uh, quote unquote angels behind them. You know what I mean, Dylan? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, you know the, the Garden, Clockwork Angels, and I, I think the Anarchist like had the the best stage. Uh, you know, in terms of monitors and lighting, live. I mean, Carney's had the the pyro, but the Garden had that uh, that tree. You know, those trees and those roots kind of coming up, and the yeah. flowers and the little hummingbird things, uh-huh. and it was just, it was pretty, and it was, it fit the, fit the theme of the, the whole steampunk, and it just, like, I can't say a bad thing about this song. It is, <laughs> you know, they've written, they've written perfect songs before, but this one's more than perfect. Here, I'll say, it, I'll say uh, a bad thing about it, you t- and I'll give you guys both a chance to react. I've said it before. Uh, it Uh-oh. took me a long time to really fall in love with it. Like I, I thought it was great. Um, I, I had an issue because I thought there was potential. I think there's potential for it to be even better, to, specifically towards the end with the strings. If you take nobody's hero, if you just isolate the string section in, on that recording, they're they're pretty active. They're they're playing a very raw emotional part. And it, it's a, it's emotional. It, it, it's, it's sort of crying. That, that string section is sort of crying in a way. At the end of the garden, and I, I'm, I imagine this was by design, the strings are holding one note through the whole thing. It doesn't, you know, we kind of get to this climax and then plateau, whereas I wish it had utilized the string section a bit more to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow and grow, and, grow and then we get the end. But it does it does plateau for maybe like twenty or thirty seconds for me at the end. That's the only room for improvement that I had. That was my only criticism for it. But does it make sense? Do you know what I mean, or do you completely disagree, Alec? I'd have to re-listen to it to uh, <laughs> yes. probably like hundred times. I'll take that. Um, um, to to say, but yeah, you know, I, I understand what you're saying. Um, particularly, sometimes, uh, you know, quote you actually, sometimes you have to show restraint in order to, uh, you know, keep it a little bit more tasteful. So I don't know. You can go either way. Right. I imagine somebody at some point was like, you know, what, like, that's expected. What if the song gets busier and busier, but the strings are just holding this one solid note? Like, I, I, I'm, I've learned to look at it musically and creatively. Like, no, obviously somebody did that by design and it was for a reason. Um, Dylan, do you think I, do you think the garden is? Are are you happy with the garden being the last song Rush ever re- releases? If that's the case, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I you know, and it's not just a great album closer. It's almost like a great career closer. Um, it's it, when I when I listen to this song and it, or like when I'm listening to my music and this song kind of shows up on my shuffle i i gotta take like five or ten minutes before i start the shuffle again because almost no song can can follow that ending up for me uh it's and like you were saying about the strings 
holding the one Nordic yet. That kind of that kind of has the same uh, feel as when uh, uh, Vital Signs is fading out. There's the synth parts, and there's only like the two notes that are really like they go down, but then at certain points they stay up high. You're talking about the string part and, in Vital Signs, right? Yeah, it's like it's a little synth part. I think I think there's playing a C and a G. Yeah, that's a that's such a great comparison. I know because that there's a lot of that on moving pictures. I think the middle of YYZ has the same sort of synthy string sound. There's just one high note that's being held. That's a really cool comparison. And in Vital yeah. Signs at the end of the record, right? It's the last thing we hear. Yeah, and uh, you know the the intro of the garden, the bass part. Yeah, uh, have you ever sat down to play that? Yes. It's kind of tricky, isn't it? Because uh-huh. it kind of switches, switches, uh, d- it kind of doubles back on you. Yeah, it, it's uh, it twi- it's a it, little it, twisty with the in the right hand. You're playing multiple strings. Yeah, and like the uh, it kind of reminds me of the guitar part in Faithless at the intro because that one's in a different time, but it does the same kind of thing <laughs> where it it it. You know, kind of switches out the the accented notes. That's another great. I don't know how you're able to pull these out, but like, those are two awesome, <laughs> uh, you know, comparisons between two songs. Extremely similar between the guitar and bass. So I guess what we're saying is that that bass part in the middle of the garden is essentially a guitar part played on a different instrument. Yeah. In a way. Uh, Alec, I want to ask you about the. The setup live on this tour quickly. We, I think, what was most unique was having those small sort of like TV screens floating around. You know what I mean? Sort of like those three big screens they normally have were kind of chopped up into little ones that Mm -hmm. all moved independently. But what was coolest about this tour, I think, was that they didn't show up until the second half when when all of we got this flood, this rush. No pun intended of clockwork angels material um the first set which is obviously very power windows heavy that's well known um didn't feature a ton of clockwork stuff and it had a more uh a more normal or or uh, predictable stage setup with the lighting and then the second half gets here and it's like you just see these things kind of creep down from from above uh you know from up top and it was a, a really cool experience. Did you do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, it seems like with the uh, the light show, they kind of were purposely reserving it for um, when the Clockwork Angel String Ensemble came out, mm-hmm. and they really that's when they really amped up um, the lights and and like you said, started moving the screens around. Because I don't think until Clockwork Angels, um, you even saw them dancing around, right, and whatnot. Yeah, and yeah then it, that. Good. Um, and I know they really liked their stage setup. Um, they were saying that the reason the Time Machine had the same steampunky stuff is because they were so in love with it, and they already had it made that they wanted to just bring it out, uh, you know, ahead of time. Yeah, and I mean, what a unique look! I'm I'm so happy that they they were able to do something like that. I'll never forget being at Time Mach- the Time Machine Shore, uh, the Time Machine Show, and uh, looking through the binoculars with my dad and my brother, trying to figure out. What was underneath those those covers where Alex's amps normally were? Because you could see like the old, uh, 
style uh, furniture legs, which were his cabinets. And then we get to Clockwork Angels tour, and those are gone, the Hughes and Kettner cabs. And we have these three big circles that obviously did nothing sonically, but uh, nice to have a little bit of a change of pace from tour to tour, you know what I mean? And Getty had a slightly different, he had the, he added the popcorn, right? For Clockwork mm-hmm. Angels? Yeah, I mean, I think you could argue that they sort of revolutionized, or not revolutionized, but were doing something hot, very different than any other rock band was doing uh, with their stage setup at that time. And then they come out with R40, and that's obviously something, again, setting the bar even higher for other bands. Whew. Wow, we did it. We got through this whole album. Another big, chunky album, too. Uh, I'll give you guys both some uh, some closing words here at the, the last couple of minutes of the album series. Dylan, you want to go first? Um... I don't know. I don't know what else to say other than uh, you know. I hope I hope we hear more Rush material after this album. Um, yeah, I I think we could probably bet on it. Don't know how long we might have to wait. Um, I I've always thought uh, that you know Getty definitely wants to wants to create something else. Right. If he does a solo album or Alex does a solo album, they both do another solo album. And and if that's all we get, then, I mean, I haven't been a Rush fan, you know, for as long as a lot of, probably a lot of the listeners have. Uh, but I'm glad I got to experience this album being uh, released and written and the tours that followed it. It, you know, it's, you know the band's changed my life. And I'm glad I got to experience that, no matter how short of time it's going to be. Yeah, and I'm grateful. In a, a similar way, I'm grateful for Clockwork Angels because I got to see two album releases, and I probably didn't deserve to see any. <laughs> you know, I got into a band that had 18 albums already, and somehow I got to yeah. see two new ones come about. So that was, uh, I'm grateful for that. Alec, go ahead, man. Yeah, I just, I just wanted to say that. I feel like Clockwork Angels was one of the best albums uh, they ever wrote, um, and we'll see if they write again. I feel like 20 albums is a nice number, and um, they, I feel like this album, the concept album, uh, nature of it, and how a lot of the songs are really, um, you know, focused on just the trio and kind of a, uh, the naked sound. And not, it's not too overly produced, um, and just the... Uh, like fantastic closing with the garden. I wouldn't be surprised if this is a period on their uh, long sentence and career, but um, hopefully they come out with more music mm-hmm. and uh, we get to expand this album series. Maybe I'll have to do it all over again. <laughs> <laughs> Just start over. That's all Rushcast is. It's like every six months we start over, go back to the first album. <laughs> <laughs> do another album. Let's do another Vapor Trails episode. Yeah, because two hours <laughs> wasn't enough. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was a great. That was fun. I mean, Vapor Trails is climbing the ranks for me, definitely. Um, all right, thank you so much for being here, you guys. And for those of you listening, thank you so much for the the great feedback on the album series. It was a lot of fun. And next week we're going to be back to the normal format, and I'm going to discuss with you what we're going to be doing for the rest of the summer. We got a few announcements to make, 
and I think you'll be excited to hear about those. So uh, we will talk to you soon. Follow me on Twitter at Rushcast2112. Uh, thanks so much for being here, guys. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.